I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. And today we're going to talk about a new world alchemist for the first time. And he's, he's very well known. His name is... Arrhenius Philalethes, and it means the, the peaceful lover of truth. He was a 17th century alchemist and the author of many influential works. He actually had a pretty big influence on the world of alchemy, in, including um, such luminaries read his works as Isaac Newton, John Locke, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, um, and Newton's extensive writings on alchemy are heavily indebted to Philalethes. Although Newton obviously incorporated many other works of, of alchemy and and also add his own thoughts as well. It is said that Philalethes is said to have achieved the Philosopher's Stone in 1645 at the age of 23. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And most people now agree that Philalethes was actually the, the kind of the, the pen name of George Starkley, who was also an alchemist and who wrote who most likely wrote the works attributed to Philalethes. He was kind of his editor, and uh, George Starkley uh, also wrote on... He, he was kind of a, a big name in medicine and um, was influenced by Paracelsus and wrote many works under his own name, but the alchemical works he wrote under Philalethes. George Starkley was born in Bermuda and studied at Harvard. If you remember, Harvard at the time was primarily a, a school of theology. Uh, he eventually moved to London where he practiced medicine. Uh, both Robert Boyle and Isaac Newton wrote high, very highly of him, and Isaac Newton probably wouldn't have been able to write quite as much on alchemy as he did if it weren't for the works of Phil- Philalethes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was he was influ- influenced by Paracelsus, like I said. He also wrote a lot of um, things on iastrochemical works, which is kind of like medical alchemy, but not it's not medical alchemy; it's medical chemistry in a way. Recounting a story of Helmont, and, and Helmont's an interesting character. We'll, we'll probably do a show on. So he wrote oil, O-Y-L, is kind of an older spelling of oil, or sulfur vivum, is a sort of sulfuric acid, kind of like vitriol, but possibly a different exact compound, but that he recommended taking two drops of daily mixed in beer. And he was, so he was very specific of which kind of sulfuric acid. Uh, he gave an example of a man in Belgium living to be 99, which is a pretty ripe old age for, for that time especially. And Starkley did experiments with the sulfuric acid on beer and wine that was going bad, so it was like a kind of about to expire, as well as meat and other stuff that was about to go bad, and also to preserve meat and fish. And uh, he also said it was good for whitening teeth. Also good against a cough of various causes and headaches, skin diseases. It can even be taken as a prevention of afflictions like arthritis, even smallpox, measles, pestilence, and contagious fevers. Sounds a little bit like snake oil. He, uh, <laughs> Starkley was a big fan of universal medicines. So, um, yeah, he might have he overemphasized some of the, the benefits of sulfuric acid, but... 
well, he was, I think people were trying to make the – always trying to find, especially in this time, to find cure-alls, right? Yeah. You know, to, to solve a lot of things. Well, Paracelsus was the guy that, that coined – this is a paraphrasing, but he's, he said it's the, it's the dose that makes the poison. So sulfuric acid is obviously very poisonous, but he's, you know said just two drops in a, in a pint of beer a day and you'll live, live to be 100. Well, let's look at that in, in, in nature though, Travis. I mean you have uh, you know, bits of arsenic, in, the seeds in an apple – if they're left out uh, in a field sometimes uh, and just say cows get into it and they eat just a couple, you know, they eat a few of these apples, the arsenic can kill them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also say that, you know, people need to be eating some of the seeds of these apples because it has a little low, low dose of, of arsenic that's supposed to help you. Yeah. yeah right? Exactly. Just, it's, so, so just yeah, the, the, dose. the yeah. dose is the poison, right? Yeah. He warns – so again, referring to this specific type of sulfuric acid, he called it like – sulfur oil or sulfur vivum. He warns against fakes being sold by, by apothecaries and the true form being only distilled from sulfur vive. And the sulfur vive, he, he, he defined it very precisely. Like it's this specific, you know, sulfur from a specific source found in nature, not some kind of, not every, you know, there's different sulfur compounds and he was basically very specific on which ones. One of his famous works is an exposition upon Sir George Ripley's Epistle to King Edward IV. And a key to the art, that's in quotes, explaining mystical language in previous writings. So to, to keep these previous writings secret in general, but he actually wrote this key uh, to King Edward IV. It's really interesting because he explains a lot of, a lot of the alchemical principles um, behind some of these, these other works. And he kind of, you know, reveals them to King Edward. So all things are multiplied in their kind. Uh, even metals is, is one of the things he says which can also be transmuted. So, you know, he's obviously a, a proponent of, of alchemy. And metals can be broken down in their mercurial essentials. Remember, we've said this before, that they believe metals consisted of mercury and sulfur. There's only two sulfurs for all metals. So um, one kind of sulfur is in some metals and the other kind in others. And all other sulfurs are just not in found in metals. So red sulfur is for gold, white pure quicksilver, and the other sulfur in occultu, that's in quotes, it's a specific kind of sulfur, like a occult sulfur. He says, this is a quote, if a man's principles be true and his operations regular, his events will be certain, which event is no other than the true mystery. And that's just an interesting quote to me because it sounds like reproducibility. It sounds like if, well, okay, it says if you have good intentions, if you have true principles, but if your operations are the same, then the events will be certain. So the outcome will be the same every time, which is, you know, it's an interesting thing to read in this time period. So he says that the ancients did not know that gold and silver were made up of mercury and sulfur. They are bound too tight. Like, um, so le- lesser metals are bound less tight and, and therefore distinguishable. So like lead and tin, you can kind of break them apart pretty easily. But gold and silver, the ancients didn't realize that they were made of mercury and sulfur because they're just bound so closely together. And we obviously now know that they're, that's not true. But, um, but now, he says, now we can know this because we have our liquor that Paracelsus knew and wrote about that can help us prove it. This liquor, um, it could be like aqua regia, you know, something that can dissolve gold. Um, so then they can prove that gold actually consists of mercury and sulfur. What I liked about going through this, this reading um, through his alchemical recipe is he gives details on the equipment like the Athenor and the Philosopher's Egg. And I mean, I do mean detail. Like he gives, ex- he tells exactly the Athenor. If you remember from our Making Gold podcast, he said the Athenor, the Athenor is the furnace where they made the 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 fire for the alchemy, and he gives 
exact dimensions. Like it should be in the middle of the room generally, it should be round with only an opening to put in coal. And then on top you have your philosopher's egg, which he gave, because he gave such an exact description, I know exactly what it is now, which is basically a, a round vessel. He says it should be three inches thick of glass. It's all glass, but really thick glass because you have to heat it for like four or five months, nine months at a time. And he says like, so you have your opening in your Athenor where your philosopher's egg sits on top and it should be kind of snug so that the temperature is even and it should be sticking out this much. So it's just interesting that he, not only does he detail this equipment, but he's like very, very exact about it. So um, yeah, let's take a look, closer look at who this George Starkley is. Talking about Starkley's life, he really led a, a, a very, very interesting life. Uh, being born in Bermuda, he uh, went to Harvard. He also found himself in London. And he also found himself in London in a very precarious time that probably had some kind of influence on his viewpoint on medicine and people that were suffering. He remained in England and continued his career in medicine and alchemy until he became a victim of the Great Plague of London in 1665. Mm -hmm. uh, his father was George Sturrock, a Scottish minister and devoted Calvinist, so you can imagine what that household might have been like growing up in. Uh, Starkly displayed interest in natural history as evidenced by his written entomological observations of various insects indigenous to Bermuda. So again, looking into the natural sciences, he probably had to be very focused on the minutiae, the yeah, fine part. I think I, think I saw he things. wrote a book on bees, for instance. And, yeah, you know, so he, you know, there's a lot of observation that goes into that uh, kind of work. After the death of his father in 1637, Starkey was sent to New England, where he continued his early education before enrolling in Harvard College in 1643. Uh, introduced to alchemical theory, he was later stylized himself as a philosopher by fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, after graduating from Harvard, Starkey resided in the Boston area and earned a living practicing medicine while at the same time experimenting in, in chemical technology. So probably learning as he's going. Yeah, I think what not all of our listeners might be aware of is that uh, Harvard taught alchemical theory at the time. So I've, I've read this in a couple different sources now. When I, when I first heard about that, I didn't really know what to make of it. But um, So the, the, the students that studied alche alchemy at Harvard... They knew a lot about it, and um, you, can, you, you can still find, like, term papers, basically, and essays, and even, like, kind of thesis written about alchemy by Harvard, but there wasn't a lot of original thought. So they, they really studied the greats, and they had a great understanding of what alchemy was at the time, but I wouldn't say a whole lot came out of Harvard, like, expanded upon the, the field of alchemy, but still really interesting that, hey, you could go to Harvard and study alchemy. Right, that's kind of cool. It is cool. He well, he seemed to go back and forth across the Atlantic a couple times. We we see the success that he had uh, with his medical practices uh, in the uh, in the New World, but he also went back to and immigrated to London. Um, in 1650, he met his wife, uh, Susanna Staunton, um, who was actually connected her, uh, in, in family ties to the future governor of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So he kind of married well into a, a nice family. Uh, it's not entirely known why Starkey decided to leave New England, but uh, uh, the case point that he, uh, he, he left in hand with a, a very well-connected wife. One clue points out to his interest in alchemy and, chem and chemical technology that might have led to his, his moving to London. It is known that Starkey was acquired great skill in, in building ovens to facilitate alchemical experiments. However, it was complained that, that the region offered unsuitable material needed for this type of operation and therefore believed that relocating to England could provide access to better material and higher quality of laboratory experiments as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's around this time when he moved to London that he changed his surname from Stirk 
after, you know, which his father's name was, to Starkey. And the reasons aren't really known. Um, but once he was in England, Starkey's reputation as an alchemist and, and chemical furnace maker grew among the scientific community, and he soon acquired a network of colleagues from the circles of friends like uh, Samuel Hartleap and also a group of social reformers, kind of utopianists and and natural philosophers. What it sounds like, Travis, is that he left uh, the the colonies of North America because – when you think about the the late seventeenth mid to the late seventeenth century uh, in North America, it, it was probably pretty hard to get things started. Uh, there wasn't uh, what we call a lot of civilization. There's still a lot of uh, uh, things that he probably did, couldn't get his hands on quite as easily. That's so. That's I think that's why he probably went back. That's what's theorized. Yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily bet on that, but because it's it's really not known. But um, yeah, that's the kind of the the leading theory is that. There was more alchemists and a bigger market and everything back well, in the Well, think Europe, about the, so. the, the tools you might need with glass making, those type of things that wouldn't be as probably ready-made uh, to what you need, with, with mm-hmm. the quality especially, of course, that you might get in jolly old England, you know, and, and uh, in, you know, a hotbed of, of, of a lot of options to have is in London. Yeah. Um, he was also a devoted follower of the Flemish iatrochemist Jan Baptist von Helmont, who's also a really interesting figure. So we might take a look at him separately. And uh, he'd been tutored in the practical applications of metallurgy. Uh, soon after moving to London, it's around this time it's thought that he started using the pen name or, or writing under the name Irenaeus Philolithes, which again is like a peaceful lover of truth. Um, this this might have maybe he got some encouragement from his new group of friends to to write on alchemical works, and he just didn't want to write it under his his true name. It's not even 100% sure that, that George Starkley was that guy. Um, what is sure is that he was his editor. So, and it's just... It, it, There's a connection would, to the works. I would say with some certainty, I mean, my money would be that, that it was George Starkley, but some of the works are actually published after George Starkley's death, which is not impossible to do. I mean, that's not, you know, hard to, to make up or to, to have arranged or, you know, someone finds his manuscript after he dies and publishes it. Um, but in any case, he, he was very successful in London, and again, he, he was producing and administering me- medicinal remedies to patients, including Robert Boyle. And, but despite his success, Starkley abandoned his patients in 1651 in order to pursue the secrets of alchemy. But alchemy, in that sense, also included the production of pharmaceuticals and the transmutation, and obviously the transmutation of metallic substances. So, for example... Starkey, Starkey's sophic mercury was an amalgam of antimony, silver, and mercury, which could dissolve gold into a mixture that, that when heated, produced the mythical philosopher's stone, an agent transmuting base metals into noble ones, right? It is also known that Starkey tutored Boyle in the practice of chemistry and experimentation, although Boyle never acknowledged Starkey's tutelage. But that's it's, it is widely believed. As the inventor of curative drugs and philosophical mercuries, it is reasonable to assume that Starkey was concerned with guarding these inventions and preserving his trade secrets. And that might be, you know, one of the obvious reasons why he picked this, the pseudonym Philolethes. So, um, you know, by picking this f- fictitious identity, he could publish this the series of manuscripts that he did and, um, you know, kind of advertise to friends that, that he, he did this while at the same time kind of concealing his alchemical knowledge 
you know, to the to the general public. Starkey himself called himself a friend of Philodeces and the guardian of his manuscripts. And at the same time, it's kind of like the, the Superman and Clark Kent thing where he said, I'm a friend of this guy, but I'm keeping his, his identity secret. Um, so it's, yeah, kind of kind of interesting. Another theory of why he would even create a pseudonym is because he had this desire to fashion himself as the master of secrets who whose discoveries were, quote, divinely sanctioned revelations. So, you know, just to kind of give himself this this aura of... This gravitas. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, you know, mysterious kind of aura about him, so... Well, you know, Travis, moving forward a few years into his life, we we find Starkey in financial trouble, and he was consequently incarcer- incarcerated because of debt, going to debtor's prison, possibly twice sometime in the late 1650s. In prison for a brief period of time, Starkey returned to the practice of alchemy and medicine upon his release in 1654. Additionally, he wrote and published a number of popular treatises. So, you know, he's got the time to think about writing, definitely, while being in prison. Uh, and maybe that he turned, uh, you know, the lemonade into lemonade by, uh, by using this time to really put down his thoughts to paper. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to, to see that even though he was really successful, he was still in debt. And, you know, we've seen this a million times. Like, alchemists kind of have this affliction of, you know, they can believe they can make gold from nothing, and yet they, they end up in debtor's prison. And in his case, it might have just been that his, his he wasn't really focused. He just had so much success in so many areas that he had all these projects going at the same time. Like, for instance, he was manufacturing perfumes, pharmaceuticals. He was doing this production of sophic mercuries. Um, these were all kind of pulling him in different directions. And, you know, he had kind of different professional relationships, but all maybe very superficial in, in some ways. So no, no one of these was creating enough income to kind of support him and his, his family. The cost to personally fund these projects was leaving him financially unstable. And it's about this time when he started going into debt that he lost the support of the Hartleap Circle. So when he finally got his act together in the final, final years of his life, he realized that, was that what was steady income was his medical practice and also manufacturing these income-producing medicines. So he never, war- he never wandered far from his chemistry lab, even in, in this later stage, and his quest for Van Helmont's Al- Alkahest and for the Philosopher's Stone. I mean, there's, there's little doubt that he, he didn't continue this, um, this search for the Philosopher's Stone, even when his, his medical practices would, even when he was continuing his medical practice. In, in fact, those, those things have a lot in common. Like, he was searching for the perfect liquor, the, the liquor Alkahest, which is kind of a med- medicinal solvent whose purpose was similar to theriac, an antidotal compound that was consumed in order to preserve health and prevent illness. So, you know, if you read stories about the elixir of life, you know, there's many side products that kind of t- spun off into medicine. Starkey's success in producing his Alkahest was limited, and, and obviously, you know, he, he didn't become rich, so we, we can assume he didn't actually find the Philosopher's Stone, uh, even though it's it you know it's claimed that that he did, although he continued to produce medical treatises, and he also wrote some political pamphlets around the time of 1660, and he engaged in public disputes with other medical practitioners and even the Royal College of Physicians, which did not help his career. And finally, in 1665, the plague found London, and also got to George Starkey. And all of his ability of being able to cure illness and disease, and including what we mentioned earlier, this, um, oh, the, the, the sulfuric oil, you know, to, he specifically mentions pestilence. Um, apparently, it didn't quite work out the way 
he wanted because he died in 1665 and his most important work was written now the most famous of the works of Philotheses was actually was actually published two years after his death those would be the, the introitus apertus ad occlusum regius palatium pardon my non-existent Latin um, but he does have quite a legacy both as George Starkley and as Philotheses so George Starkley's alchemical laboratory expertise and, and formalized methodology were were highly respected and um, scientific in the scientific community and became the basis for latter practices in the 18th century uh, experimenting with chemistry. His influence on Boyle's work and discoveries in chemistry is really indisputable. Uh, it is perhaps the survival of Starkey's laboratory journals that is the most important here, Travis, because uh, for this he provided at least the opaque window through which the view to laboratory experimentations and operations and methodologies uh, in particular to the the very kind of uh, unseen 17th century alchemical process. We can actually see what he did. Mm -hmm. Those journals really give us a, a, some insight into that world. Yeah, and I have a couple of his texts in the in a book called The Alchemy Reader. And I got to say, like, I'm, I'm actually really impressed with just how clearly he wrote everything down. I mean, he gives exact measurements for the equipment and, and a really clear process. And again, he wanted that book to be kind of secret, you know, not to be widely distributed. But, um, you know, people like Boyle, Locke, Leibniz, Newton, they were all able to get their hands on it. And, and that must have been a huge resource for them to just be able to, in plain English, be able to read how to make the equipment and, and how to follow his instructions. So, um, and, and this actually goes beyond alchemy because in the emerging field of chemistry, uh, you know, using this 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 equipment, they were able to kind of expound upon the this you know chemical compounds and and this experimentation and and um, you know make some discoveries with his equipment. So it, it is really important for the history of science. Even though George Starkley was probably too much of a mythic mi mystic to really be regarded as a canonical figure in the in early modern science. It's clear that the people he influenced were, you know, like Leibniz and, and Newton. So it is a really interesting person to take a look at. They've written, under, the, under both names, he's written quite a lot of books, um, including like we talked about, on, on, you know, books on, on insects, uh, books on sulfur vive, um, also political works. Well, like, like you said, Travis, he, he was a man with many different hats, and that led to a lot of his financial troubles in the middle of his life, unfortunately, because you know he had too many uh, irons in the fire, so to speak. I mean, he had a lot going on, so successes across the board, but he also needed a lot of seed money to start these new projects, and his debts just kind of accumulated, which kind of gave a, a nice big speed bump in the middle of his life when he could have been doing a lot more work. So um, I, I think that you can look at this guy saying, I, I you can you can follow his his chemistry background. You can uh, talk about naturalists looking into his his viewpoint on on bees and insects and and their their habits. Uh, and then you can also look at his his contributions to alchemy in in general. So, really, a man, a very fascinating man of of many different talents. Yep, and from Bermuda, New World. There you have it. Yeah, <laughs> um, I I did come across a, a couple other American alchemists. I wouldn't say American because you know he wasn't from the United States, but but uh, call him call him yeah. colonial, colonialist alchemists. So we'll if I can find more about their lives, I found some of their works, but it's hard to dig up details on their lives. Sometimes he George Starkey Starkey was really an exception. So if I find more stuff, we'll do some more episodes on on New World alchemists. Um, but that's about all I have 
for you today. I would uh, do a quick reminder that I have a book out. If you'd like to help out the podcast, go to Amazon and look for the Alchemy booklet, or there's also a link from the website, historyofalchemy.com. And it's just 99 cents. It's basically instead of, a, instead of a donate button. Nice little, very short introduction to alchemy and kind of a really quick summary of what this show's about and um, you know what alchemy is, the history of... really. It's a treatise of alchemical thought. Sure. You haven't even read it, have you? I have not. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, sir, I have not read it yet, but it's on my, my to-do to read list. Okay. So thanks very much for listening. Thanks and have a good night. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy Podcast, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.